0: Well, we're going to continue in our series in 1 Corinthians, Correcting Carnality in Christ's Church. We are currently in chapter 11. We've been kind of boring down and focusing on verses 17 to 34, where Paul defines and defends communion or the Lord's Supper. Last Sunday, we learned that when the Corinthian church gathered to celebrate communion. There were wealthy members in the church who were basically causing divisions by clicking up and sticking to themselves. And so they were causing divisions. They were also discriminating against the poor believers and brothers and sisters in the church by not associating with them and by keeping the elements or the bread and the wine from them because they were consuming everything up. They were eating and devouring everything up. And we also learned that uh, because they were hoarding all of the resource and devouring everything and leaving others out, they would overdrink and actually get drunk. Of all places in the universe that someone could get drunk, actually the Earth. Communion is where you choose to do this. So I'm not saying that drunkenness is good. I'm just saying you get drunk at communion? So this is something that was physically playing out in this church and it's what we're focusing on. And last Sunday we looked at the first point that was in verses 17 to 22 where the Apostle Paul literally excoriates the Corinthians, just rebukes them as as hard as you could, as hard a rebuke as you could find in Scripture anywhere for their abuse of communion. He just lets them have it. He's just appalled by the report that he's gotten about this church in the way that they've been conducting themselves as a whole, but primarily during communion. They, they've just—I don't know—they've just flooded it with carnality and turned it into a pagan party, and it's just—it was sickening to Paul, and so he excoriates them. And then this morning we're going to look at the second main point. Really, I found three main points in the whole text. We looked at the first one last week. Today we'll look at the second one. If you could. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 11. And I'll give you the text in just a second. I want to pray once more for God's help. Lord, we're going to need your help this morning. Um, we're, We're not going to comprehend and understand your word without the aid and help and power of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to be able to live it out without the aid and help of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to be able to apply it. There's really nothing that we can do on our own, in our own strength. Uh, I guess there's plenty of things we can do, but none of them are good. And so we just call upon you now and ask in humility for your mercy and for your grace and for your power in the Spirit to open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts to the truth that we would understand and comprehend, and that through the Spirit we would also want to obey and not just desire it, but to obey your Word. Help us to learn about communion today and the sanctity, sacredness of it, and and maybe from this point forward, as we've done, we've talked about this every week, that when we enter into the time of communion, that we would take it much more seriously. And uh, so just teach us and train us this morning from your word and be glorified through all that is said. We love you and pray in Christ's name. So we can pick up where we left off last Sunday and look at our second point The next thing he does, Paul excoriated them. Now he educates the Corinthians on communion. He unpacks what it is. We see this in verses 23 to 27. That's our whole text for this morning. So chapter 11, 23 to 27. And the text, if you just give it a cursory reading, a slow reading, you'll see that it's far more practical than you would think. It's kind of laid out in in sub points. It's very simple the way Paul has laid it out. And Really what he does in his educating component here is that it is a a very basic elementary level uh, teaching on communion. Just the the basics, the ABCs of it, if you will. And I find that to be interesting that he has to do that with this church because he's already done it with them. When he planted the church, he, he went over these things with them. So within 18 months, they've already forgotten. And it just goes to show to illustrate not how bad the Corinthians are, but just how bad all of us are. That, you know, we forget the important things, and we don't take seriously uh, the important things, and we we always have this drift back into the flesh, and it's a problem we all deal with. So, but in any case, we're going to look at the ABCs of communion. Uh, Paul gives uh, a handful of sub-points, and we'll begin with the first sub-point where Paul describes A the progenitor of communion. Verse 23a, you're thinking, what is a progenitor? That's an originator. That's someone who creates something, something that originates in him or in her. The progenitor of communion, and we see this right at the onset of the text where Paul says in 23a, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Just stop there. Paul begins by telling the Corinthians that his, his knowledge, his understanding, his theology of communion, the blueprint for it, so to speak, it came directly from the Lord Jesus to him. It was, as Paul says, received. It was received by him. How would he have received it? Through revelation. And what that means is that Jesus was obviously revealing truth to Paul that Paul might reveal it to his churches, the churches that he planted, the communities that he visited. And communion is just one of the many things that Jesus revealed to him. I think Paul's knowledge and theology and understanding, biblical view of communion, which didn't exist in the Old Testament, I think it came directly from Jesus and it wasn't handed down through maybe Luke or One of the other disciples or apostles. I think it came right to him. That's what he's saying. I received it from the Lord. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is the progenitor of this sacrament. He is the one who created it. He is the one who instituted it. He is the one who started it. He is the one who came up with it. He created and established communion, the Lord's Supper. When, Well, if you know anything about the Gospels and you give those a cursory reading, you know he did it at the Last Supper. The final supper before his, you know, his arrest that evening and then crucifixion the next day, crucifixion and death the next day, burial and resurrection on Sunday. The Last Supper is when the progenitor creates this lasting ordinance that we call the Lord's Supper or communion. You might think of it like this, the upper room where they had that last supper, that is the birthplace of the sacrament. And then it was ratified, codified, put into rule, so to speak, by Jesus the very next day at Calvary when he shed his blood on the cross. So it's instituted on a Friday night, it's ratified uh, the very next day. Or it's instituted on Thursday night and ratified on Friday. In other words, communion is not something that the church or Christians created or conjured up. It's not something that, that you know, through, through centuries of, of, of faith and Christianity and churches and these sorts of things that kind of came into existence. You know, it started here and then there's some kind of a progression where it looks like it does today. That's not the case. Jesus is the progenitor. He creates it and institutes it at the Last Supper in the upper room. It's not something we came up with. It's something that he came up with. It was given to the church. It was given to Paul. He received it from the progenitor. And Paul also reminds the Corinthians of the time he what? Quote, delivered, unquote, the sacrament to them. Is that this particular moment? No, it's not this moment. It's from before, when he planted the church 18 months earlier. These, These people knew who the progenitor was. They knew that communion came from Christ. They knew what it was. They understood the sacredness of it. They understood all of these things about it. They had been taught. It had been delivered to them from Paul, minimum or maximally, 18 months earlier when the church was planted. So they had almost two years of understanding and celebrating community. And yet somehow along the way, they deviate from what Paul delivered to them and started doing their own version of it. And their version of it didn't look anything like the progenitor's version of it. And here's here's the bottom line. An actual church, According to Scripture, cannot be a church if it gets either or both of the sacraments wrong. If you don't do communion right according to Scripture, you're not a church. That is not a collection of believers that can call themselves Redemption Hill or Big Valley Grace or Cross Point or whatever it is. That's not a church. You have to actually have the sacraments and practice them regularly, and then you have to do them according to what is written. And the moment you deviate from from the blueprint that Paul is giving, you, you can't call yourself a church. That's how essential and important the sacraments are to the church. Makes total sense in my mind for Paul to delivered, not just communion to them when he planted the church, but also the other sacrament. There isn't seven like in Roman Catholicism. There's two according to Scripture. The other one, which is baptism. He gave them those things when he planted. They already had the blueprint, but they weren't following it. After Paul departed from Corinth, these men and women who call themselves Christians, not all of them, but some of them in this body, They began to introduce their own ideas to the sacrament. They transformed the Lord's Supper into what I called last week their supper. This is why the apostles said it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat back in verse 20. They thought they were celebrating communion by dividing and by discriminating and by getting drunk. They were calling that communion. And Paul says, that is not communion. You can call it what you want, but just so you understand, that's not communion. That's your supper. In some ways, that's the supper I saw last night at a wedding, because that's 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 what the world does. It gathers and it's got its little cliques and, you know, I don't want to hang out with you know with with Fred over there and you know and I just I want to hang out with Bill and you know I, I Bill you're great you know and <laughs> I, I I you know they get drunk at weddings you know which is kind of sad you know and here I am playing music going I'm helping these people party this is not good because <laughs> I have a DJ company you know but and it, it just. It resembled, what they were doing resembled what I saw last night. I'm not trying to condemn these people. They're at a wedding. They're having a good time, but that's not the Lord's supper. That's a wedding supper last night. That's that's what Paul's saying here. You come together and you call this communion. You can't call it that. Paul's point thus far is, is very simple. Since communion originated And came from Christ it has to be done his way it's that simple we we have this rule for all of us right if if something belongs to me I and I have somebody take care of that for me I expect them to do it the way that I laid it out I don't want them to do it their own way I give Bruce a responsibility and say, Bruce, here's what I want you to do, and I want you to do it my way, and he goes, hey, brother, I'm doing it my way, then I say, it's my way or the, (laughs) that's why he's not an elder anymore, no, I'm just kidding, (laughs) never done that to him. But you understand what I'm saying, right? I mean, if you, if you have possession and ownership over something and maybe you give a degree of stewardship to somebody and say, I want you to take care of this and here's, you know how we do it. This is how I want it done. I don't want you to deviate from that. Oh, yeah, of course, Phil, I'll take care of it. Then they go and do it their own way and then it doesn't hit the mark or falls short of what it's supposed to be. That's frustrating. Probably not going to have that person do it again for you. Anyone who owns a business knows exactly what I'm talking about. And in many regards, that's what we're talking about here. Jesus creates something that's beautiful and grace-giving, empowering, enriching, and hands it off to his people. And then within 18 months, they're doing something completely different with his design. We don't have the right to do that. And that's what they're doing. We have... No right to add our own creativity or ideas to this thing that the progenitor gave to us. We have no right to enculturate the supper, make it like the culture. We have no right to transform it into some kind of carnal party. The fact of the matter is, is that this particular supper called communion, the Lord's Supper, it, it pictures special, beautiful things like the new Jerusalem. It doesn't picture this wicked, fallen world. It pictures a heavenly feast with the Lord, not an earthly festival. And then when we try to turn it into those things, it doesn't it doesn't resemble its progenitor. It doesn't resemble his design. It falls short of all of this. And how offensive this is and must be To the progenitor. I've given you something beautiful for your own good and for my glory, and you twist it and distort it, and it's not good for anyone. And it certainly doesn't bring me glory. Honestly, I think at this point, these people, they're, they're lucky to be alive. And some of them weren't so, quote unquote, lucky. You read down a little bit further, some were ill and sick and dying because of these abuses of communion. That's how serious it is. It's a heavenly feast, not an earthly festival. It pictures the New Jerusalem, not a fallen world. We have to get it right. Let's move to the second subpoint where Paul describes B, the pattern, parallels and purpose of communion. We see this in verses 23b to 25. Paul says next, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in verse 25, in the same way he also took the cup after supper and he said this, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And how many times have you heard that text read during a communion service? That's the quintessential text. Paul, what he does is he kind of takes the Corinthians to that unforgettable scene in the upper room where the Lord Jesus, the progenitor, was gathered with his disciples and he established communion right then and there in that At that supper, right on the night of his arrest, he established it right then as a lasting ordinance. Paul says on that night, he was... Betrayed, He says, and we know that was by Judas. And on that night when he was betrayed by Judas, p- just prior to, to him being arrested and then walking up to Gethsemane prior to all that, but he was betrayed. Judas was already, I-, I think, already gone by this point, but he at least sold him out to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other seas. He says he was betrayed. And on that night, the Lord Jesus, he took bread, he gave thanks, and then he broke it. Okay, this is the pattern. Remember, we're talking about the pattern, parallels, and purpose. That's the pattern for the bread. That's the pattern that we follow. What you see are the words of Jesus. What you need to see are the words of Jesus and instructions. Uh, He's establishing it, a pattern so that we can follow the pattern. We are to take... The bread in our hands like Jesus did. We are to give thanks to the Father like Jesus did. What? For his physical provision, for his spiritual provision mostly. And then what? Then we are to break it into pieces so that it can be shared with every believer in attendance. That's the pattern. You take up the bread. You pray. Thank the Lord. Break it up. If it's not already broken up and then you distribute it among those who name the name of Christ in the gathering. And I would just simply say if the bread is already broken like it is here at RHC, it's fine. The broken bread does represent his broken body. If it's already broken, then we understand the symbolism. The point really, I think a sub-point to the point of it being broken, representing his broken body, we break it up for that purpose because it resembles that, but also so that everyone can get a piece. But ours is already nicely cut. Very uniform. Whoever's cutting that stuff every week, just at least put some little jagged edges on it. <laughs> I don't know of anyone who actually breaks it. Maybe, I don't even think the Catholics do that. They have the wafers. But it represents his broken body. And, and we'll talk about that. That's the pattern that we follow. In the second half of verse 24, Paul literally quotes Jesus from the upper room. This is my body, which is for you. That's from, obviously, he got that directly from Jesus, but we see it in Matthew 26, 26, and Mark 14, 22, Luke 2219 19a. What are we talking about now? That's the parallel. So we have the pattern, you're breaking and thanking and distributing. Now we have the parallel. The broken bread portrays the broken body of Jesus on the cross pattern parallel. And then he quotes the Lord once more from Luke 22:19b or directly from the Lord, the Lord said, "Do this in remembrance of me. Do it in and when you come together and do this, remember what I did." And that's the purpose. We are to take the broken bread in remembrance of Jesus's broken body, how he was broken in our place, how he was crushed for our iniquities how his body was essentially destroyed for us. 1 John 2, 2, Isaiah 53, 5 says it was God's will to crush him. So you've got the the pattern of taking the bread and thanking the Lord, breaking it up. You've got the parallel. It It represents his broken body. And then you have the purpose. It's done in remembrance of all that he achieved and accomplished in his finished work for us. After describing the pattern parallel and purpose of the bread, Paul moves to the wine. He says, the Lord Jesus took the cup. There's the pattern again. This is the pattern for the wine or for the juice. We are to take the cup as the Lord Jesus took the cup. Paul quotes the Lord again. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. That's Matthew 26, 28, Mark 14, 24, Luke 22:20. 20. And what we're seeing now is the parallel there. The cup of wine or juice portrays the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross. It represents not just our redemption because the blood is what washes away all our sin, but it represents the blood of the new covenant, which does, in fact, atone for our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The 19th century Baptist preacher, Robert Lowry, once asked, what can wash away my sin? Do you remember his answer? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Boy, did he get it right. And that's what the cup represents, the precious, perfect, atoning blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And then Paul cites... The Lord Jesus wants more. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That, of course, is a direct quote from Luke twenty-two nineteen 19b. Now we're seeing the purpose for the wine or the juice or the cup. We are to take the cup in remembrance of Jesus's shed blood, how he bled and died to pay for and take away our terrible, heinous sins we are to also remember that we are under a new and better covenant because this is when you take up the cup it represents the blood of the covenant under the old covenant you had to regularly sacrifice bulls or animals various animals if you really were on a super budget like a great many of us are under this inflation you brought a couple dove cheap birds maybe you snagged a pigeon had to be a flawless pigeon out of your barn you took it down you just had to sacrifice something with blood in it ranging from lambs to birds but you had to do that all the time for your own sins to appease the wrath of God and only temporarily that's the old covenant that that's what we would be under if it weren't for communion if it weren't for the Lord's sacrifice Can you imagine? Where on earth would we do that in Modesto? Well, we've got to go down to the Sacrifice Center. It's over next to Dick's Sporting Goods. How would we even do this? That's the old covenant. You know what? If you're in Christ, you're not under that covenant. You're in the new covenant where Jesus has done all the work. All of the significance is, is just in the symbolism and in the sacrament. So maybe the gravity of it is starting to, you're starting to see the gravity of how serious it is. And for it to be mistreated is just blasphemous. Now we're under the new covenant. Jesus does all the work. The Lamb of God laid down his life as the final sacrifice. He ratified the new covenant with his own blood. If we believe in his sacrifice, we are not only covered by his sacrifice, we enter into the new covenant and we become new covenant benefactors. All the blessings of the new covenant are ours. All the promises are ours. When believers come together for communion, they are to take the bread in remembrance of the broken body of Christ, take the cup in remembrance of the shed blood of Christ, and obviously, in remembrance of the new covenant that Christ has brought us into, and they're to partake of these symbols, consume these symbols with great joy. Mark Taylor wrote, Passover itself was a memorial, right? Exodus twelve fourteen, recalling the Israelites' redemption from Egypt. The Lord's Supper, by way of contrast, is a memorial to Christ himself, who redeemed his people from the bondage of sin. It's just more significance buried into this awesome sacrament. And yet, if communion is characterized by the things that we see in Corinth by disunity, discrimination, drunkenness, it takes on an entirely different meaning. The sacred supper becomes a sordid soiree. Instead of sanctified, it's satanic. Instead of holy, it's unholy. Instead of righteous, it's wretched. It does not picture heaven above and the new Jerusalem. It pictures hell below, the place of separation and suffering and sorrow. Some of these things, the separation, suffering, and sorrow were characterized in this church because of the abuses of communion. The very characteristics or qualities, dare I say, of hell represented in a church during communion. Let that sink in. It's a travesty. Well, let's move to the 3rd subpoint, where Paul describes C, the proclamation of communion Verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion is and was designed to be a proclamation, a declaration, even a sermon if you want to call it that, or an announcement of the death of Christ. That's what it communicates. That's what it conveys through its symbolism. Those who come to it, therefore, should, not, uh, should come not to satisfy their hunger like we saw in Corinth, nor to, to gratify their social desires or feelings like we saw in Corinth, but for the definite purpose of bearing their testimony to the great fact or truth of redemption. That bread and cup are visual expressions of the gospel. They proclaim Jesus' death. That's what what communion proclaims, the death of Christ. Baptism proclaims the resurrection and life of Christ. You can see just in these two sacraments, you have the whole gospel. You've got the death of Christ. You've got the resurrection and life of Christ. You even have the burial represented in resurrection as you go under the water. It's all there. So when the sacraments are practiced properly, they are proclaiming the gospel. But not if you're divided, not if you're drunk, not if you're hoarding all the stuff, you can't get along with anyone in the church. I mean, you're you're just, you're sending a different message than it's intended to send, you see? That's what Paul's talking about. The whole gospel is encapsulated in these two sacraments, and that's why they're so important. If you get communion wrong, if you get baptism wrong, you you get the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ wrong. You get the gospel wrong. And the watching world is what? More confused than it is. How could it be more confused than it is today? Well, somehow we can cause that. We should... You know, the world is already confused enough. We shouldn't confuse them about these things. But when we don't do them properly, the world sits back and looks and goes, they're just no different than us. Why would, I, why would Jesus even be worth following? They, they get drunk at communion. I think I'm going to go. I like to get drunk on Friday nights. Now I get drunk at church on Sunday. The world is confused. Communion not only reminds us of Jesus' broken body and shed blood, but it points us to his return since the church is supposed to celebrate it until what Paul says, he comes. That's the second advent. That's the return of Christ. this, This... Sacrament We call communion. It is a sacrament for the entire span of the church age from the first coming of Christ to the second and final coming of Christ. That's the duration of it. And, and, and in between that period of time, no matter how long it is, 2000, well, it can't be 2000 to 2500, whatever it is. This is something that we're supposed to do regularly and do it right regularly. to be celebrated often until he returns. We won't, after he returns, we won't have to do these sacraments anymore. We we, we won't need to express the gospel through symbolism. The gospel will be here in the flesh, Christ. why 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 would we need to use symbolism to display his life when he'll be standing there for people to see that he's alive, coming on the clouds. Thomas Schreiner wrote, The Lord's Supper is not only a remembrance, but also a proclamation in which a message is disseminated to the world about the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It looks not only to the past, but also to the future. He's speaking of the return. You see, when the Corinthians came together for communion, Is this the message they were sending and proclaiming and conveying to the lost world around them? Were they proclaiming the selfless, sacrificial love of Christ to each other by how they loved and cared for each other and to the perishing world around them? Absolutely not. They were proclaiming through their abuse of communion, divisions and discrimination and drunkenness, to their brothers and sisters, even those who weren't participating in what they were doing because there was a remnant in the church that wasn't doing it. And just as bad as that, they were proclaiming these brutal, carnal, worldly traits and characteristics from the church out to the community. They were demonstrating zero fear and no reverence at all for the second advent right? If, if, if this is an ordinance, if this is a sacrament that we're to do from now till he returns, and it must be done in a holy, righteous, biblical way, and we're treating it the way they're doing it in anticipation of his return, and you're treating it like that, like it's a drunken party, you have no fear of his return. You don't even care. If you were to come that night when you're in the middle of it, you're not even cognizant or thinking of how he might find you in that moment. Has that ever crossed your mind that Jesus could return at any moment? Has that ever caused you to be a little bit more sober in your thinking and actions? You know, I'm messing around in something here that I, wait a minute, he's coming back and the scripture says like a thief in the night. I don't know when, it could be tomorrow, it could be now, it could be in 10,000 years. I don't know, but is this what I want to be doing when he comes back? Hi, I'm here, Phil, way to go. Is that how you want to be found? Can you imagine being found at communion, hammered? This is great. And that's when he returns? (laughs) Getting drunk on his blood? And it's not literally his blood, the symbolism, but still, the symbolism is enough to take it serious. They had no fear of him or his return, They didn't care how the Lord would find them if he had come back at that moment. The proclamation of communion is the Lord's bloody, sacrificial death for sinners. That's what it represents. It ought to be the most sober, mindful moment that we have of all the moments we have so many moments that we're given and that moment in particular as we're reflecting on his bloody death for our sin the last thing that should be on our minds during that particular moment of all the moments we're given is let's sin let's practice what he went and died for man you feel the weight And you're thinking, well, I would never get drunk during communion. Well, we talked about this last week. Maybe the application's different from us. I'd never get drunk during communion, but I have no problem with Sally Mae. I mean, I have big problems with Sally Mae. I can't get along with her at all. And you've got these divisions. What's the difference? Divisions defile the sacrament just as badly as drunkenness. Any sin. Well, We have to go into this thing with sinless perfection. No, that's not what Paul's teaching at all. He's simply saying, of all the moments you're given, this is one. Now, you should, you should be killing sin at all times, but this is one of those moments where you really stop and think about what you're doing. Like I said, when it's handled improperly, it's, it's not proclaiming what it's designed to proclaim. It's proclaiming whatever you are now causing it to proclaim. Let's look at that fifth or fourth and final subpoint where Paul describes D, the peril of communion. The peril of communion, verse 27. Of course, he'll get more into this in the next, under the next point, beginning next week, Lord willing. Verse 27, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Maybe up to this point you've been thinking, well, I think Pastor Phil's got a lot of caffeine in him and he's just real passionate about this text and maybe he's using a little hyperbole to illustrate the importance of it. Just read verse 27 to yourself every day for the rest of your life and you tell me if I'm overacting here. You tell me if I'm using hyperbole or going too far. Scroll down a little bit and find out where people were dying because of this abuse. You think I'm overdoing it? I'm underdoing it. After studying this part of the text, I was at the point where I was thinking, knowing me and how sinful I can be, I was thinking, I don't know if I ever want to do communion again. Now I'm being disobedient for not doing it. I want you to do it, and I want you to do it right. Well, I might screw it up, and I don't want to do it, Lord. Well, don't screw it up. I screw everything up. Verse 27, Paul begins to draw a conclusion concerning communion, indicating that the supper is not merely a formal and ritualistic celebration of which Jesus accomplished. He says that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner is guilty of what? Sinning against the body and blood of Christ. Well, what constitutes an unworthy manner, right? Can we put some handles on that and try to figure out what that means? Well, the immediate context determines the immediate meaning of the phrase unworthy manner, like what we've just been studying and looking at. What sins did Paul expose in the immediate context? Divisions, verses 18 to 19. Discrimination, verses 20 to 21a. And drunkenness, in verses 21b to 22. We looked at all that last week. If these particular sins are present in the heart of a believer during communion, they will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord because they are essentially mocking his work by parading before him the very sins that he died to remove. There's the gravity and weight of that. He died to end our divisions, to pay for those divisions, to end them. He died to pay for and end our discriminations. He died to pay for and end our Reliance on and abuse of substances, substances like alcohol and these sorts of things. Continuing in the sins he died to end undermines and mocks his work. It's an, uh, an abuse of grace. And, and then you, you, you consider the moment of communion where you're now parading these things before him not just in your everyday life, which is terrible, but now in communion, you drag drag these things into there and you don't deal with them and it's a mockery of his work. And I mentioned this earlier, but Paul was not promoting any kind of sinless perfection. He knows that believers will struggle with sin. He knows this. He preached it, Galatians 5, 16 to 18. He's using the Lord's Supper to demonstrate a proper theology or understanding of what sin is. Believers must take sin seriously at all times, especially while they are holding in their hands and are about to consume the symbols of their redemption, the bread and the cup. Mention this a little bit. Now I can get into it more. By grace, God has given us thousands and thousands of moments. We have breath in our lungs and time to do things, and we have all these moments. They're all by His grace. And we are to take sin seriously in every moment, especially during communion. We should approach the divine dinner table with a fierce hatred of sin, with a, a careful evaluation and confession of sin, and a steadfast commitment to war against sin. That Those things are requisite, to entering into this supper. We don't just walk into the supper table like we're at Wendy's. Hey! Give me one of those malts that's not actually made of ice cream. I once found one of those things down in Dry Creek Park. It was about three weeks old and it wasn't melted. Be careful. I just looked at it and went, that's not even melted. Rachel's like, that's not ice cream. I said, I thought it was. And that's a... Stupid, silly way to look at it, but it's not promoting anything like that here. We've got all these moments. You've got to take sin seriously, especially when we approach the supper table. The sacrament, the sacred sacrament requires this approach, and it reminds us to take sin seriously, doesn't it? You understand what it represents, his shed blood and broken body for your sin. It forces you, as you take up those elements, it forces you to reflect on just how serious sin is because it cost Jesus his body and blood. You're holding these things in your hands and you're looking at them and you don't just see bread and juice or wine. You see the redemption of Christ and what it took to pay for your horrendous sin. This sacrament, above all other things, really, uh, in conjunction with the Scripture, just forces us to reflect on and to take sin very seriously. But we're not to just take it seriously, sin seriously in in the sacrament here, but in every moment. You know, the, the sacrament here of communion, it... It does echo, in a way, the sobering words of John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If we don't put it to death, it'll put us to death. Now, we must ask this as we begin to kind of tie things together. Are are the contextual, you know, the sins that we've already looked at, like division, discrimination, and drunkenness, are are these the only sins that defile communion, all the sins that the Corinthians were practicing? Of course not. These are just the sins that they were practicing. They're not the only, you know, as long as I avoid those three things, I can just jump into communion. That's not what Paul is saying. John MacArthur wrote, and I think it's in your bulletin. It's really not a quote. It's more like a book. It's like a Dave text. One can come to the Lord's table unworthily in many ways. It is common for people, people to participate in it ritualistically without participating uh, with their minds and hearts. You know, they could just go through the motions. They can go through the motions without going through any emotions and treat it lightly rather than seriously. So you can just do it as part of your religion, so to speak. It's just something we do. This was one of my fears when we did it every week years ago. I was worried that it was just... we weren't treating it with the same level of sanctity and seriousness because it was so common to us. And this is also part of our nature. If we do something enough, it just becomes blasé regular, ritualistic. And communion should never be treated ritualistically. I just do it because the church does it. MacArthur's warning against that. He also says, many come with a spirit of bitterness or hatred toward another believer. This is something we focused on last week. Or they come with some sort of sin. They will not repent. They've got sin in their life. They have no intention of walking away from it, and they take up the elements. That's pretty scary. He says, if a believer comes with anything less than the loftiest thoughts of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and anything less than a total love for his brothers and sisters in Christ, he comes unworthily. That's a pretty tall order. And JMac is actually describing here is the real issue. At Corinth, you know, you've got the divisions, you've got the discrimination, you've got the drunkenness and all that. Those are real issues. But the real issue in this church was the real issue that we find in just about every church, and that is a lack of love. Obviously, a lack of love for God manifesting itself in a lack of love for one another. The rich believers failed to love the poor believers And they did this by leaving them empty-handed, by leaving no bread, no wine, no nothing for them, so they couldn't even participate. They had come down to the church building or to the house where they were gathering to celebrate communion, and they had nothing to celebrate with because the rich sucked everything up and even got drunk. They left the poor empty-handed. They left them humiliated. No bread, no wine, no provision, no care, leaving them hungry. That was tantamount to no love. The rich violated the second great commandment and the law of Christ when they failed to what? Quote, love their neighbors as they loved themselves, end quote, Mark 12, 31. The message they were sending to their community is that, hey man, we're no different from any of you unbelievers out there. And what do unbelievers walk away with at that point? Well, they call themselves Christians. They're no different from us. What's the point in following Jesus? That's a waste of my time. Lovelessness, as we see in this church, it puts us on par with the world because our world has no concept of what love is or how to love. Just clueless. It talks about love a lot, but it has no concept of what it is. And when we fail to love, when we refuse to love, it just puts us on par with the world. But love for our brothers and sisters in Christ shows that we are not just loving, but that we are actual disciples of Christ. John 13, 35, they will... Know that you belong to me by how you love one another. The watching world needs to see Christians loving each other selflessly, sacrificially, and through humble service. I don't quote secular people very often, but I will right now because it's a stinging point Gandhi once said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And we don't know why he had that opinion. We don't know why he formed that opinion. Did maybe some Christians treat him poorly? I don't know. It's possible. You know, he's in a different religion, and sometimes we don't handle those things in love. I don't know why he had that opinion, but I suspect it's because he witnessed how Christians treat other Christians. We've been jacking each other up for 2,000 years. What are we reading about in the text? (laughs) Rich Christians humiliating poor Christians. (laughs) It's right there goes all the way back, all the way back to the beginning. And I think very sadly, these relational and church abuses, they're not really going to come to a complete and full end until Jesus returns because that's when he will vanquish all sin. But in the meantime, we must work at it in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit We must learn to die to ourselves for the benefit of others. This is the way of Christ. If we want to be like him, we must follow his sacrificial example. He laid down his life. We must follow that example and lay down our lives for others. He laid down his life for the sheep, John 10, 11. We must learn to lay down our lives for others, especially the household of God, Galatians 6, 10. The peril of communion is to eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner like the loveless, wealthy Corinthians were doing. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will discover how to partake in this amazing sacrament in a worthy manner. That's what Paul will describe next as he exhorts the Corinthians.